Hello, Spacers. From Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, I'm joined with Peter Olson, Director and Creative Technologist at IDEO. Before he joined IDEO, Peter was founder of and served as Vice President of Technology for Marvel Entertainment's Digital Media Group. Before we get started, some notes on where I'll be and some words from our sponsors. First up, CSS DevConf 2016, the AMO, is taking place this October 17th and 18th in San Antonio, Texas. Learn the latest by hanging out with some of the best in the business. Chris Coyer, Jen Simmons, Snook, Trent Walton, and many, many more. Learn more about the tracks and sessions and register now at CSSDevConf.com. The ATX web film series is showing what comes next is the future and code bridging the gender gap documentaries on October 3rd at the Alamo Draft House Theater on South Mar. So if you're in Austin, Texas, please check it out with more details at atxwebfilmseries.com. Set it and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. When a new episode is ready, have it directly emailed to your inbox by setting up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Find show notes and links discussed in today's episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. And as always, thank you for subscribing, commenting, liking, and telling others about the Non-Breaking Space show on iTunes. Now, on with the show. Well, it's going to meet you, uh, Peter Olson. Uh, is, is it okay if I call you Peter? Yeah, Peter's great. Okay, cool. Um, yes, I'm not sure if you heard an episode or so before. Yeah, I've heard the past uh, few. I've heard the Simon De Laurent and um, hmm. uh, wait, Simon Laurent. There's no day in there, right? No, no just Saint Laurent. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Dan Jurgens, which is that was pretty cool to hear him. Uh-huh. And then um, the woman who do- talked about accessibility and the accessibility standards, whose uh, name now yeah, escaping me. Yeah, Glinda. Glinda Sims. Yeah, yeah. She's the awesome. good, the good witch, the yes. good accessibility witch. Yeah. So she's she's amazingly positive all the time it's amazing yeah. so it's a good good spokesperson for accessibility yeah so uh but thank you for being on the show and and uh i'm gonna count, I'm gonna count that as a fan of the show i'm just gonna just put it out there but yeah so i saw you on twitter a while back when you launched the uh marvel api mm-hmm. and I thought, it was amazing it's, it's cool so i've been following you ever since and then oh, wow. and then the uh, the simpsons uh your uh I, 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 scorpio yeah, Hank Scorpio. Hank Scorpio. Yeah. You sold me on that one. I'm like, <laughs> following this guy. This is great. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I just want to catch up with you and talk about, well, one thing we, we kind of ask everyone on the show is like how they get involved with the web. What was your first impression? What were you doing? Um, you know, what, so what was your first impression of the web? What, like how did you find out about it? And, I was in college uh, – so, you know, I started college in 93, and um, the web obviously existed a little bit prior to that, but I guess probably after my sophomore year um, was when it really was starting to propagate pretty heavily uh, into the, um, the, you know, the minds of everybody uh, at the time. And uh, I, I don't know what the first website I ever saw was um, it might have been just something like Yahoo back in its days when it was they were attempting to manually index everything uh, and categorize it. Um, and I remember a few things 
uh, you know, like we we would use it to actually find, um, uh, you know, like walkthroughs of games or things that could unlock things in games. And like one of the things that, like prior to that, like a bunch of us would would do things like modem connections into BBSs and things like that. Uh, you know, where you would have you know text based or minimal. Go, you know, graphical user interfaces to to, and you're doing kind of a one to one connection to a, uh, hopefully local telephone number, <laughs> um, that uh, you know to to download or whatever, and um, or even like way way back in the day, my family had like a, I think it was the source account, not so like the competitor, not CompuServe, but the competitor to CompuServe. Wow, um, I didn't even know they had competitors. Wow. Yeah, they had a. <laughs> And so we did that type of engagement and, you know, my, my parents are academics and so they had, we were able to get on to like email and listservs and, and stuff like that. But like even before I was in college, but like it was in college where um, it was just kind of starting to take off as something that was like getting outside of academic and research circles and, and into like the college campuses and all of that. And um, I think probably the first site I ever made was I was on the rowing team in college and um, I was never a great rower, <laughs> um, but I didn't know how to do, uh, I was pretty good at picking up, you know, technology and, and um, you know, graphic design software and things like that. And so I did the a first uh official site for the the rowing team from my school um, and it was uh like it's it was just after i remember like the standard change so that there was a day when you couldn't put a background image and then there was a day you could and it could tile and so it was like you know people within the school and out, outside were like Oh, I did this. You can you can actually put an image on the background, and it can be it can tile, and you can you can make you know. And there was a lot of effort at the time making sure that it tiled just right. You know, so um, yeah. And so I mean, I when I graduated, it was still something that was like beginning to be a really burgeoning, you know, field for uh, you know media expression and and also as as a career. So. Uh, I kind of was able to get in right at the beginning in, in certain ways, at least in terms of it being like a commercial uh, endeavor or something you could actually go and make a living on. <laughs> it's a, where did you go to college? Uh, it's it's called Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Okay. And what did you, what'd you study? I was a double major in uh, neural science and studio art. <laughs> so there so. was a lot of class overlap. But. <laughs> I like there'd be very minimal class overlap. Yeah. So how, how that is, that is very cool. Uh, how, how did you come to that? You know, what drove you to do those two majors? Um, there's a few things. I mean, I, I had always like, I am, I, you know, I studied neuroscience, so I know that this analogy is, is actually totally bogus science, but I have always done left brain and right th brain things. Um, and so, like, uh, you know, I'd always done throughout, like, even high school and, and I think even still today, things that involve, like, analytics, understanding, you know, scientific rigor, building, working with the kind of 
science and building and, and analytical part of the brain, but also uh, things that were expressive at one level or another. So, um, you know, when I went to school, I was really, really interested in neuroscience, and I thought I was going to go into film, um, but I took a class in architecture um, my first semester um, and really fell, uh, you know, in love with doing architecture as kind of an expressive um, medium. And it was, I was literally like, I came in as like, this is the hardest I've ever worked on anything in my life, you know, uh, you know, and really just wanted to just wish I could put more work into it and more work into it. Um, and so I wanted to, so architecture was a concentration within the art department. So I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And my parents were also like, you're not going to come out of school with an art degree. So <laughs> I, uh, in, and I also was really interested in neuroscience. I mean, I, one of the reasons I actually chose the school is because I had a great uh, neuroscience and behavior program, which kind of balanced biology and psychology. So I, I kind of, I went in on both of them and, you know, I did my thesis in art and architecture, but, uh, my, a lot of my course, I sort of balanced a lot of like science and, and art classes and, you know, it, it, so it was a liberal arts school, so you're kind of supposed to do that anyway. And, um, you know, so like I would have a semester of like half the time in like the architecture or sculpture studio and the other half the time, like in organic chemistry lab, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, doing, doing both of those. And actually, uh, when I took organic chemistry, my <laughs> architecture and sculpture training really helped because I'll, half of organic chemistry is actually visualizing the shape of molecules in three dimensions. And, and so <laughs> there were like soft overlaps, if not formal academic and pedagogical ones. So, <laughs> so a little bit helped out there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's one thing I liked about, I love about the web is that you have to be creative expression but also it requires the analytical brain to do to do a lot of the, the background even more so now i would say like yeah, yeah more so now. so yeah cool so do, do you do you feel like it's paid off like <laughs> like like you like you actually work in your in your uh, college education if not like directly but like you know it, it's helped helped you yeah i mean i would say well i'd say too, i mean definitely like the art degree or the art side of it i was learning what at the time was kind of new and upcoming technologies like Photoshop and Illustrator. And so there was, as well as, uh, uh, to some degree, like the learning HTML and things like that. Um, I mean, I would say more broadly going to a school like that where, it, you know, a lot of what you try and do is figure out how to solve problems rather than coming out with like a very specific kind of trade craft. Um, um, like, you know, it wasn't like some places where you'll go and like you'll do pre-med or you'll do business and, and you learn a lot of specific skills. A lot of like the, the takeaway is like actually how do you attack really large complex problems, which is something that kind of over the course of my career I've had to do in different capacities. So I think more importantly than like, you know, do I use neuroscience on a regular basis? Probably not. <laughs> Although, you know, every once in a while I'll come back and like get inspired by it or something like that. Um uh, uh, one of the projects we did at Marvel that we, uh, me and uh, one of my co-inventors uh, on that we got a patent for came from, was actually inspired by uh, uh, what they call RIFLIP or the restriction fragment link polymorphism tests in DNA. So basically it's a way of like 
random pseudo randomly splitting DNA chunks so you can do DNA fingerprints. And we did something similar with with large image files and ended up getting a little uh, patent over it. Um, I think we never actually implemented the thing we were going to do it for, but we we're like, oh, we could do this. And I don't think anyone's ever tried this before. So it was inspired. Biology can and neuroscience can sometimes be a real interesting source of inspiration, even if it's not like, even I'm not like spending time in a lab or anything like that. Okay. Well, it takes you long for you to uh, decode that patent and tell, and tell me what it does and, and then uh, in Eng- my, my, my broken English, I guess. Oh yeah. It was, <laughs> it was pretty, it, it was just a way, it was a way we, we were like, we were looking at ways of, um, you know, potentially protecting everyone had a big challenge with media companies, you know, and when this is when I was at Marvel, um, is, you know, making, sh- making sure people are having enough security around things that, you know, you can keep the honest people honest, but not investing so much time in it, um, that you're, you're just getting into these arms races that, you know, uh, are not really productive and just, you're spending more money trying to build security versus, um, actually building products that help consumers. So this is a way of like kind of making a light level of security around things around the front end of, a, of, of content delivery on the front end without like in creating a really heavy DRM, but also making it so that, so essentially what it would do is like in, in DNA, you apply what's called a restriction enzyme, which, you know, DNA has got this four letter vocabulary, right? So it goes, you know, ATGC, AT, you know, whatever. A restriction enzyme will look for a sequence of letters within the, a strand of DNA, and wherever it just—if you throw it against a particular strand of DNA, wherever it just happens to hit these letters, it will yank them out, and so you get these fragments of DNA of varying length. And then from those, and that that signature of the fragments becomes is what they use to do genetic fingerprinting, right? So one person they'll they'll pull it out on a on a piece of gel, and you'll see like longer and shorter fragments, you know, in there. And that, that's what a DNA fingerprint does. Similarly, what we would do is essentially create, if you think, convert a, say, like an image file or a sound file or something like that and uh, encode it in whatever encoding, like Base64 or something like that, create a random sequence of letters that existed within the letter space of whatever encoding you're doing and then use that to just chunk the file and break it <laughs> uh, into different things, and then extract that key whenever it was found. So, like a you know a two megabyte file might, or a smaller file might break out into a bunch of little chunks. So you send the chunks, and then reassemble it on the client side using the key that isn't shared at the time. Um, so it's just it's just a, like a light way of protecting assets. They're not like very easily. Uh, assemblable but very quickly reassembled like on in uh, an, an application or on the web yeah. okay so all right i'm gonna have to listen to this I'll a couple, couple times <laughs> <laughs> but uh but we don't tape now okay cool awesome well i think getting a patent is pretty awesome so yeah that's pretty do you have any other patents uh i got yeah i just got i got two while i was at marvel um one was around uh the digital comics uh viewer that we launched um actually we launched it way back the one that we we submitted the patent for was was back in 2006 and then that one so i've got two i mean it okay. doesn't really mean 
<laughs> it's sort of funny, like, it, one, one interesting part, like, I was on a, 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 the patent committee at Marvel and, and Disney, for, or the, for the Disney patent committee at Marvel, and I was also on the Disney open source committee, so I was, like, looking at the problem of IP from both sides um, uh, while I was there. But it was, it was cool because it, it, it gave me a kind of wide... Uh, understanding of like, you know, how 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 does it? When does it make sense for a company to open source? Like, when is it uh, best to participate in, say, open standards bodies? Like, which and in, in in like we participated in some stuff with Schema.org and the uh, semantic web stuff that there. And then you know, when does it make sense to kind of maybe hold something closer? Um, and I you know I think software patents are a whole minefield, but. Um, there are some, you know, there's sometimes reasons where a company might want to do it. Um, but yeah, like uh, the, um, but yeah, so it, it's sort of like looking at things you make and like how can you actually use them in a variety of ways and actually, and and how does it actually help you? And one thing I'm, I'm still very curious in and try and help, you know, both, both IDEO and, and other clients we work with now is like, how do we actually, you know, we've made this thing, how do we actually use it, disseminate it, and have it do even more broad impact through through the use of either open sourcing or creating open APIs or data marketplaces or, or make it ha- be impactful beyond just creating the thing, but actually getting a lot of impact after the fact, you know. I never really thought about Disney being open source or having an open source uh, culture, I guess. Is, is, that, yeah. is, is, yeah. that, uh, is, is, it, is it there? I mean, is it, it kind of like... I have no idea. Is it is there, is there a website I could look up more about that? Or if there's a centralized one, different different business units kind of handle it differently. I know, like right. if you go to Git, I think ESPN has a GitHub page, and mm-hmm. Disney Animation has actually done quite a lot. And Marvel, we did we contributed to things individually, but it wasn't like we didn't. I don't think we ever released anything. But right. yeah, okay. I mean, there there definitely was an open source committee that I was on, and you know, like thinking about kind of how how it could be used. Uh, throughout the company and it, and it was a pretty broad, I mean, it's like a lot of companies is a big, broad remit, you know, but, uh, um, but yeah, if you look like, um, I know Disney animation has actually done quite a bit. So. Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, no offense to Disney, but just like, I don't really find that they're, they'd be great. Uh, uh, I'd be, uh, be, I'm pretty sure. Like, I just, I just feel like they wouldn't be uh, too uh, dedicated to open source technologies a lot. But uh, not to say that's bad. Just saying that's what it is. So, um, so this is uh, you mentioned Marvel. So, I mean, but I do want to mention like, like how did you get started uh, as a, in a web career? So, what, what were your first gigs or first jobs? And so. sure, yeah. I mean, I um, so when I graduated uh, college, I you know, like I said, I I kind of concentrated my art stuff into architecture. And I was like, I really want to go into architecture. And then I went to work for this really interesting, great architect. And I came out loving architecture more, but realizing it wasn't what I wanted to do professionally. Um, and so... Why is that? I think there was a lot of things. I think like there was, um, you know, just looking at kind of the, the hours and the business model and, and all of that, like... Um, it was, and and kind of how, both like kind of how difficult it is to come up and get to the point where you can be really expressive at it. You know, it, it, I think it's the same thing 
that happened to a lot of things with the advent of the web is that your ability to be creative and amplify and publicize that was democratized in a lot of ways. And it's very difficult for that same kind of um, process to happen in architecture. I mean, it'd be interesting now with the advent of 3D printing and, and things like that, um, if that's the case. But, you know, to build, to make a building, you need capital and you need a, you know, you need a patron or you need a big company or a hospital chain or something to, to help you realize that. And then you have to also convince them that it is uh, in their interest, you know, from a business and space perspective to, to get that building built. And there was a time, you know, uh, the, the architect I worked for is named Peter Eisen and he's written a lot of, um, uh, he's, he's like, it was the type of thing, like I was studying him in some of my classes and then I graduated and six months later I was working for him. <laughs> it was really, uh, kind of an amazing experience. Um, but he, uh, one of the things he wrote about is how architecture used to be, you know, maybe a few hundred years ago, the way you presented yourself to the world. And now we have a variety of media by which you can do that. So, whether, you know, it used to be you would, oh, I'm going to take over this country and build a bunch of cathedrals to show how powerful I am. And now you, you do an ad campaign, <laughs> so, uh, which is it's probably a little more cost effective and time, time, timely. So, um, we, uh, so, you know, and at the same time, I was watching and, and seeing how uh, the web was really exploding uh, you know, here in New York and, and all over the world, um, and how it was this great engine for communication, for, uh, you know, supporting subcultures, for, you know, taking anyone who has an idea and being, them being able to amplify it in really interesting ways. Um, and I felt like it was, to me, like that was really exciting. So, you know, I started out just like literally just doing freelance work, um, and then I went to, you know, an early kind of this, and this was kind of the early high heroic period of the dot-com boom. <laughs> so, um, and I went, so I went to a company that did, um, a, they ran, they managed a handful of web properties. So some of them were things like, uh, kind of more general entertainment sites, but we also did a lot of, uh, kind of official celebrity websites. So we did like Cindy Crawford's first site, which was interesting. We did Britney Spears' first site. Um, um, and then from there, I went to another startup that was uh, basically a community site for, for teen, teenagers. Um, and that was a really amazing experience, partially because it, it made me really interested in how the web can be used to build and support communities. Um, and also, like, that age group was so just absorptive of that technology um, and kind of building and communicating and, and uh, uh, speaking in a, in a way that, like, I think had not really even seen, even by my generation, I wasn't that much older than them, you know, than our audience in a lot of ways. But I think, like, there was, you could tell there was, a, there was a fairly bright line of the people who were, like, growing up with the web versus the people, like, maybe my age that were uh, discovering it, like, in, in post-secondary education. Um, and uh, so I think that, that's, that working at that place, which is also, you know, long gone with, that, with the dot-com boom, but um, 
uh, was a really uh, was very eye opening for me. It showed me sort of how uh, uh, communities can exist at scale and how to you know build and foster communities. Um, and you know, both at Marvel and and now at IDEO, it's something that you know the ability of modern day technology to kind of work at scale to to spread information to to build subcultures sometimes you know maybe in negative ways now um it, it has always been very interesting to me and in being able to uh facilitate that and and uh was something i've always been interested in so like you know so yeah in what ways has technology uh did you see or you implemented like with the the with the the younger generation and mm-hmm. like like what things worked in terms of scaling with technology like like how, like how how did that work out like what did you guys do yes. well I mean I, I think one of the things that was in, that we got we glommed onto which was at the time now is so foundational we don't even think about it but at the time was an emerging thing which was like the the rapid growth of SMS. And so we were, you know, it was primarily a website, but we built a lot of hooks into SMS and we were seeing like, and it, it kind of hit Europe a little before the United States, but like they, it, there was some statistic quoted at the time, and this is a while back, so <laughs> forgive me if it's slightly wrong now, but like the, the rate at, at when SMS and when it was still kind of a pay per message or pay per bundle of message service in Europe uh, the U- the smoking rate amongst teens in the UK dropped significantly because they were spending their money to text instead of to buy cigarettes. Like, oh wow! Um, so there were things like that where there were you were seeing new modes of communication, and this is also the era where, like, say something like AOL Instant Messenger was starting to uh, pop up. Um, but like all these new modes of like group and one-to-one communication in different modalities of like whether it's a asynchronous thing on a message board or it's a asynchronous group chat all of these new modes of communication were just kind of exploding into the general populace and were also uh being really sucked up by you know particularly you know at least in that in this instance the teens of that that site and you know this was, you know, 99 to 2001 that I was there. And we are, we had upwards of like 5 million users when I left, you know, which at the nowadays is like, oh, well, Facebook's got, you know, the entire country of China um, <laughs> sized user base. But like at the time, it was a pretty, like, it, it was a very, you know, it showed sort of the potential that these things had. It's just, you know, at the time also there, you know, the, the, the bottom dropped out of the business market at the time, uh, f- uh for that. And, and things like the, um, there wasn't really the ad market or the economies of scale you get now for, for infrastructure that, you know, like there wasn't the equivalent of AWS or, or, you know, uh, Google cloud or, or Microsoft Azure that you could just really scale up to the cost. So there was, I think, you know, and that, that, you know, caused, you know, the bottom to drop out of that, you know, whole sector for a few years. But, um, you know, the, the impact that you could have at that time, which I still think is largely, you still can actually have this great impact at scale, um, through these technologies, uh, was pretty incredible to me, you know, (laughs) and the fact that like, you could say, have a site that, 
whose content was almost entirely uh, generated by teenagers and who could then who then had like a way of expressing themselves that heretofore had never had, you know, um, is pretty amazing. I think it's one of these these things even today, like the the we get so uh, we technology is so foundational to what we do. We forget how, kind of how amazing it is sometimes. Uh, it's like the Louis C.K. Everything's amazing and. Everything. Everything's, you know, everything's amazing and everyone, nobody's happy. Like, you know, forget like, you know, (laughs) you can be a kid writing a blog on Tumblr today and uh, that can become, you can become a major media celebrity or, you know, at least a minor media celebrity. And people who are, who would normally, you know, not be able to engage with the kind of media, regular media landscape are able to kind of become famous, whether it's through Tumblr or Instagram or, or Snapchat stories or what, what have you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I see what you're saying with, with that. Just like there's a, my hometown, a, a football player, at the local college sat with a, uh, a kid with disabilities mm-hmm. and he, who's by himself during lunchtime. Yeah. And, um, he's not in, it was like his favorite cause no one sit, sits with him yeah. at lunchtime. And so he had this great lunchtime and he came home and his, he has a photo, and someone snapped a photo of it. Mm-hmm. Came home, mom loved it. It made local news. Yeah. And now it's like a whole viral. and went through a nation, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, and now he's uh, he's he goes to the team, you know, uh, games now. Like yeah. he's, on, he's on the sidelines now and everything. So it's yeah. pretty awesome. And like he wouldn't have that without that that viral. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have made yeah. local newspapers if he would have made the national Good Morning America, <laughs> what have you. So I was just like, whoa, crazy. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, I get that too. But also. My beef with the, the Louis C.K. thing is that uh, <laughs> I would be glad to travel airplanes uh, in the 1960s where they feed you real food. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, now yeah. it's like, look at these peanuts here. In the yeah, we're looking at it through a relative lens. And we're like, yeah. Expectations yeah. are ramping up and the ability for them to serve are sometimes not keeping right. up with that. So. Yeah, it's like uh, also the, the switch up comedians also like Tina Fey, which is like when, you, when people clap when they land. The plane. I was like, all the attendee, all the passengers on the, on the flight. They when they clap. Yeah. It's like, why, why are you clapping? It's supposed to. It's supposed to land. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Someone is doing their job. It's like <laughs> clapping, parking, parking someone's car or something like that, or parking. Yeah, it's, car. it's like, well, I parked your car. Like, good job. I'm like, oh, thank yeah. you. All right. Yeah. So uh, it's all relative, basically, yeah. Yeah, as you said before. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm really negative about that sort of thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, and so I want to talk about now is just um, okay. I guess just gonna, I was going to just step into it. Like, how did you get into Marvel? That's that, that's like because Mark uh, Wade always said that. Uh, I think it was Mark Wade. He said like, uh, "There's always one way to get into comics, and you just uh, and once you find it, it that way is always paved over, and you yeah. can never go back." <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was I started working for Marvel, uh, and you know, and be clear, I were I worked in their digital media group. Um, I didn't, you know, ever, a, you know, I, I didn't have any real involvement in the creative side of the comics. Although, you know, I, it's a a smaller company than I think a lot of people realize. So there's always a lot of, you know, conversations there. But um, yeah, we um, I started there in 2004, and it was actually they, it was 
it's one of these really boring things. Like there was an ad on the internet and I applied. Oh, wow. Uh, awesome. But it was kind of a cool, um, at the time it was a really cool opportunity because they're, they're, they were at, through the dot-com uh, boom, they had grown their digital media capabilities. And then kind of after that crashed, they cut that back really severely. And, you know, they felt, I think, a little burned out of it. And this was, you know, it's, it's hard to think of Marvel back then the way with the kind of cultural weight it has now. Like this was, they were still at the time basically in their post-bankruptcy period. So they were, uh, you know, five years out of being bankrupt um, in Chapter 11 or whatever chapter equivalent that is, you know, for, for big businesses. And um, they... Uh, you know, we're, we're very focused on just how can we do, uh, how can we operate as leanly as we possibly can? So when I was brought on, there was, you know, maybe one or two other people in the whole company thinking and working on digital. And, you know, my remit was basically like, okay, in about six weeks, Spider-Man 2 is going to come out. Can you redesign our site (laughs) and rebuild it? I'm like, Oh, sure. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, so we were able to to do that um, and to some degree handle the traffic from the movie release. Um, and then, uh, you know, we got through that period and then we're just kind of like, how do we actually, we feel that there is a huge opportunity for Marvel in this um, uh, in this digital, in the digital space because they just weren't thinking about it, you know, uh, the web, there were, there were games and things like that, but there was, you know, basically I, you know, the web group was, was me and part-time three other people or something like that. And, um, so, you know, I just was sort of like, it's almost like kind of being like a, sort of like a startup founder, but also in the part of a larger company and you have this well-known brand and things like that. So, um, you know, we started working on features and, pushing different things out. Like I think the one, one, one thing that early on, which now seems like really kind of dated and a little bit of a no brainer. I was just like, let's do wallpaper. Let's just like every week when the new comics are coming out, we'll do wallpaper of half the covers and, you know, put it out. And, um, we made a production process around it. And one thing, one thing I learned really quickly was how to make really efficient processes. Cause it would be kind of you know, there wasn't, it was either me doing it or like an intern doing it. And so we had to like anything we had, like if we, it wasn't automated and there weren't like really great, you know, off the shelf CMSs at the time, it was just like, uh, doing a lot of process design and engineering was actually a decent chunk of the job. Um, so, so what is, uh, what are your tips for building efficient processes? Like, what? <laughs> um, I, th- I would say one is, uh, do only as many actions as you absolutely have to do. <laughs> so like if you're doing a bundle of things like, you know, at the time we might do like, you know, have to kind of crop out, you know, 20 photos, 20 covers at the time at, from a portrait to a landscape or widescreen view um, and figure out how to reduce those as, me- as much as possible and make it as simple as possible. Assume a very minimal knowledge on the part of the person Doing it. So, like, there was there were times some of the processes we we did for later on for digital comic production 
was a lot of it was like actually writing scripts in the Adobe scripting languages that that could handle it. So like it required just someone hitting a button as opposed to doing five steps within a thing. So, um, but yeah, like we, you know, and then from that, the, after that, like we, I kind of over a summer I was working with this, uh, intern and we're like, it it sucks that you can't come to marvel.com and read a comic online. (laughs) So, um, and we're just like, what if we just do this? What if we build it, you know, build like a method to do it? Cause like we could get the art files if we needed through just Marvel's, you know, digital asset management. And we're just like, how do we, how would we do this? And we basically kind of were like, we're going to spend the summer and we're going to figure this out. And so over the summer we built, you know, what became the digital comics reader for Marvel.com and then the, the process to back it up and worked with uh, you know the the publishing group there to to figure out like how could we actually put these out initially as marketing and then build a business around it and that was kind of like what is now Marvel Unlimited that's kind of how it started with like two of us sitting in a, a windowless office at Marvel um, uh, being like let's do this let's you know and built the whole thing in Flash in like three months at least and you know, and it's it's obviously completely different product now right. <laughs> a totally different uh uh scale uh, of business but like that's kind of the type of thing we were able to do is just, like at the time it was just like mm-hmm. this is something we should you you would think would be here let's do it and at the time there wasn't really no public no comic publisher had ever leaned into uh digital distribution in a really serious way mm-hmm. um you know, you could do things like you could buy CDs with like PDFs of comics, or you could buy, uh, you, you know, BitTorrent was starting to to rear its head, and so you could get stuff illegally. But like nothing, there were no, no one was ever like, n- no publishers were like really saying like how do we how can we take this seriously? And it took you know kind of like a demo and a prototype to show that we could create a good experience around it, and we could you know, start to drive interest in it and then ultimately turn that into a product that, you know, people would would support commercially. So it was, you know, it was one of those things, it was a moment where uh, we just needed to, like someone needed to do it and it turned out Marvel was in the best position even with this really skeletal crew at the time right. to, to do it. And then, you know, this is the type of thing, like as it started, that started to grow and Marvel as the whole, you know, as as an organization got more and more prominent um, and we, we, they started to invest more and more in the group. And so it's sort of the group grew, you know, laterally, it grew above me, it grew below me. And, you know, uh, but like, it, you know, that type of thing, especially, you know, kind of pervaded through the whole time I was there, but especially in the early days when we were just like, we were trying to discover and explore how this can be really valuable to Marvel as a company um, and, and value something that can really bring a lot of value to our fans. Um, you know, it just took people like sitting down and it's like, we're going to do this and <laughs> let's figure it out, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. It, takes, it takes someone who, who wants the ownership yeah. of it. Right. So yeah, that's, that's important. So, um, cause I know, I'm not sure what, what year was this or what, what time frame was this? You know, we, I'm trying to think that, 
those um, that was probably like 2005. It was we did the work in the summer of 2005. Um, and then like Marvel digital comics and we had, we were launching, we launched a variety of digital comics, like as, as essentially as like a long pilot between like the fall of 2005 and the fall of 2007. So like we were kind of building up the site generally at the time. And we did things like going back to the communities, like we, you know, we knew we had this great avid fan base, so we did things like created a character wiki, which is, I think, still there. And at the time was, you know, the time I was there was always like kind of the number one feature of the site in terms of, of traffic, um, pretty right. substantial portion of the traffic, because like ultimately that's what people care about. And I think that was another kind of brave thing for Marvel to do was just like, we're going to turn over our the the online presence of our characters to the fans <laughs> um, you know because they they know it best and they could and then it was a way also again we could scale with a relatively small staff to um uh to support uh you know to to get the character get bios of characters that we wouldn't really be able internally to to have the staff to write you know so like right. the the, char- the the fans were engaged and could keep up with it a lot better. We could internally, and they, they often, you know, frankly, know the backstory better than, you know, maybe not like every edit. Like Tom Brevoort knows everything um, <laughs> about Marvel, but uh, you know, but but like people at least in the digital side, you know, they they would often know it better. And we did, you know, we built out other community things. So, like I think coming from like building communities and subcultures from teens, we were able to, I was able to apply that to you know, helping build uh, products, you know, and, and supporting the, the subculture of fans. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we built out things like the digital comics product, product. So when we launched Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited that, you know, mutated into Marvel Unlimited a few years later, um, you know, a lot of it was... Uh, that was kind of in the context of a lot of other activity that was going around on the site at the time. And obviously we were doing stuff that helped support, you know, just the sales and marketing of our comics, the sales and marketing of the movies and the television shows and, uh, you know, anything else to, to push the company. I mean, one thing that a digital group at a company like Marvel and, and probably it's probably not unique to Marvel, but definitely we felt it there is that like, Oftentimes it becomes like the horizontal for all the verticals, you know, yeah. and it crosses. It's the thing that kind of can help glue together these things in a really intentional and cool way um, that, uh, you know, and that was something that we, we definitely felt, you know, there. So Right. Yeah. And I feel like uh, turning over the characters to wikis is, is, is great because I feel like I'm not a big Marvel fan. I mean, I'm going to say up front, so, but uh, <laughs> I'm a DC Comics guy, which is, yeah. you know, Sorry, but uh, it's just that. Uh, it's just that uh, one of the cool things I love about DC is that the uh, the who's who mm-hmm. portion of it, and that just goes yeah. back into the Wikipedia, the Marvel Universe, you know, where they just catalog everything and they actually, yeah. you know, take the brain power and brain trust, you know, and that's a lot of time and effort on their own creators' hands that they have to pay their own creators uh, and yeah. creatives to actually build those things out and to turn a uh, wiki over and to the fans. I think it's just a mm-hmm. Very smart move on Marvel's part. So that's you know, uh, if not in terms of financial, and also creative too, <laughs> you get to get the community involved. So it's just yeah, pretty awesome. And so, uh, always, I mean, one thing I think Marvel 
did always did pretty well was try and stay engaged with the fans. I mean, even back in the age of Stan and Jack, you know, they would write letters and you would, they would Stan, Stan Lee would write back to you. And there's some great ones if you go through the archives that people have found, like George R. R. Martin wrote to, um, I think it was Stanley, but one he wrote a, he wrote a letter to the you know about the Avengers you know, to there, and you can see how that level of engagement has you know pervaded in you know Marvel and others, and I think it's extended to the way we at the time presented ourselves on the website and a way and the way it embraced uh, social media in different ways as well. Yeah, and that's one thing I, I miss about comics back in like you know. When I, when I get it, it was like you know before the internet uh, mm-hmm. people would write write letters and then the editor would pick the letters and then yeah. and so you get this nice uh you know obviously hand-picked letters <laughs> about uh about the past issues yeah but you also depending on the editor they would get you hints of what's coming what's the you know back door yeah. and then with marvel it was also you get the uh i know i know it was named the bullpen all the time but it was like yeah. a letter from the editor so and, and sometimes it's stanley or Jim Shooter yeah. or whatever, so it's it was always always great. And now with, uh, I felt like I loved email, but when email <laughs> people would be able to email editors yeah. and and then the cost of paper, I guess, for the book, you know, they stopped yeah. they stopped doing the, the the email the letters in the back, the comics. I just thought, oh, man, just, <laughs> if a little, little piece of me died. So, yeah, it's like that's not what a comic book is, man. But um, <laughs> um, so talk about you know we talk about like you know who's you and Marvel Universe. Yeah, I uh, it. There's some great presentations you've done there that are online about, uh, I guess, the Marvel API. Is that right? Is, is that what, what what's yeah. called? Or would it be something else? Well, called? someone, I think, Fast Company called it the Uber framework. Yeah. And it got like kind of expanded a little more. Like it's not something we ever called. So one of the things, you know, as I was at Marvel Longer and Longer, one of the things we found that was you know, challenging is, is kind of dealing with the scale of, you know, Marvel had been telling stories since 1939, you know, this giant soap opera that's been running. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and, you know, and, and it, this isn't unique to comic universes, but I'm sure like DC and Marvel, it's, it's probably one of the more complicated ones because you run, these stories run for, for, crazy lungs like you know if you look at the tolkien universe you know at a certain point it stops you know the Fro- frodo leaves the plane and, you know goes off to to see the the velar or whatever and uh marvel and dc and other big comic universes keep going you know even the star wars universe like until the new movies have stopped right you know it's like in and any anything even like stuff like the Clone Wars uh, cartoon was kind of pre-filling, you know, up to the the, the episode four and um, or episode three, I guess it's all between two and three. But uh, and so that created this huge challenge of how do we actually represent this? And it, and it, it was sort of two things like one kind of how do we make sense of it and how can we ultimately make sense to our fans both from you know presenting stories and grouping things in a in a um coherent way and a way that's understandable and also reaching different audiences so like a 
you know, a, a mom or a dad who has a young kid who's really into Spider-Man may not care about the nuances of Miles Morales Spider-Man versus Ultimate Peter Parker Spider-Man versus Spider-Man in the 616 universe versus Spider-Man, you know, and all of that. They, they just want to have Spider-Man stuff, whereas many fans are very interested, like, I just want to know about Miles or I want to know about, you know, the, the core Marvel Universe Spider-Man. And then even within a storytelling universe, you have like the, the example I've, I've given a lot is Hawkeye, where he started out as a villain, then he became Hawkeye, then he was Goliath for a while, then he was Hawkeye again, then he was dead, then he was, <laughs> then he was Hawkeye, you know. And um, then there's other characters who've assumed the mantle of Hawkeye and things like that. And the way we had up until that point, just as a as a company modeled that stuff was was fairly statically. So there's this thing called Hawkeye in the database. Um, and uh, we found that there needed to be a much more nuanced way of doing that. So we kind of started to, to tease it apart. And we found that like using graph theory was kind of the only way to do it. So we looked, you know, graph, you know, I, I, I had never studied that in college, like that, kind of particular branch of math and computer science. And I kind of came across it like looking at just like how do you approach this problem. And it turned out to be a really great fit for modeling this very complex and shifting universe. And so... So uh, how would you describe graph theory? If you... I, I mean, it's really, it's it's a very, at its core, it's pretty straightforward It's and simple. It's it's a, uh, you, it's, you, you break things out into things and their relationships. Like you look at, you, you break, uh, you know, things out and they could be people, they could be uh, entities of different types and you look at how they relate to each other. Mm. And it kind of turns traditional data modeling on its head a little bit, which is like, if I'm creating like a schema in like MySQL or Postgres SQL or something like that, um, a lot of the time, and I've been in, you know, business conversations where this happened a lot, like people get very like, focused in on like what is the at you know is this a you know is this a string is it a number is this property this 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 you know and get very very uh and it, you you get very focused on like the details of properties of things and then you'll say oh well that relates to this and this relates to that you know and and so looking at things with a graph perspective you just you you look at think how things relate primarily and you you um you know, a lot of these, you, you see the lines with like circles and circles and lines connecting everything. And what's interesting about it is there's been so much work done against it. And they, they, it really had a, I mean, it had been around as a, as a theory for a long time. I can't remember the, off the top of my head, the mathematician who first started to do it, but he was like trying to find ways, like, can you cross seven bridges across a German river and not repeat your path or something like that? But um, as a, uh, with the advent of large, kind of simultaneously with the advent of, their, of the large social media sites and with Google trying to make the web less strings and more entities, um, there's been a lot of work in like in a resurgence and kind of research and understanding of how this works. So the, the kind of for free thing you get when you start to model uh, information as graphs is this, a set of very powerful mathematical tools that allow you to analyze it. So it starts out with things like modeling in a traditional database like friends of friends of friends becomes 
somewhat computationally complex, but in a graph representation is much kind of easier to do. Um, and then, and then things like who are the big fish in the big pond? Who are this big? Who are the characters that connect other? In our case, characters that connect to other characters. Like one thing we found when we started doing this type of analysis, like so, there's a big Marvel universe, right? Um, and then there's a bunch of kind of little satellite ones, like the Ultimate Universe or the Squadron Supreme verse or the, um, uh, uh, you know. There was like a whole universe where like everyone was covered in cancer and it was like all kinds of things like that. And we could see like which characters were actually big connectors between it or in the main Marvel universe, like which characters became big kind of the glue characters for um, uh, between the big franchises. Um, and you could even do things like we with like a naive um, clustering algorithm, we were actually like able to tease out all of our franchises without like the the algorithm knowing anything about our characters just by looking at how they relate so like how many times has this character appeared in this comic in a comic with another character things like that um you know at the, so this was something where we kind of we really kind of leaned in to just understand the intellectual property better and also even things like how do we group comics uh into stories and be able to kind of break out of the periodical structure that is inherent to comics. And so that's like, if you are publishing, you know, comics are kind of organized like magazines, except that like, if you have, if you subscribe to like the New Yorker or Cosmo, you know, you get one issue every month or in the, you know, every week and number one comes after number two. And at the end of the year, there's a new volume and it's very regular comic series kind of appear and disappear fairly frequently. Um, they rename for pretty, pretty commonly they they number in strange ways like there was a middle there was a point at which um we had to change our whole data model because they moved they changed comic book numbers from an integer to a float <laughs> yeah because that point you know, ones and point fives and things yeah, like that yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah no, dc did that with uh their villain issues i guess or- yeah <laughs> and then um and and especially like like we live in the age of Netflix and Marvel Unlimited now, right? And so if you are a Marvel Unlimited subscriber, there's ten thousands or tens of thousands of comics that are available. And maybe the original periodical structure that is published in is not really the best thing in terms of reading us a, a long story. Like you have a big event, you know, that might have tie-in issues that can help enhance the story. Uh, maybe you just want to follow a character uh, maybe not even the main character. Like, what if you reorganize all of Spider-Man and just followed Mary Jane throughout it? You know, something like that. So, like, it gave us way, gave us tools to kind of slice and dice the data, just for some really tactical things of just like if someone's looking up Spider-Man, can we actually give them comic books that Spider-Man shows up in? Uh, to like really interesting new ways of potentially telling these stories. Um, you know, to the extent those have been implemented, who knows. <laughs> And then on yeah, and then towards the end of my time at Marvel, we released the Marvel API, which I thought was a really again like I, I think it harkens back to the, the theme of like we had we always wanted to make sure our fans were engaged in different ways, and this is just a new way that they could they could stay engaged, right? Where um, and there's some cool stuff like that's been done with the, like the Wall Street Journal has done all this analysis of like the color usage in the covers using the Marvel API. Um, I, and I, I have like if my Twitter background is actually 
the entire run of like 700 issues of Uncanny X-Men broken down into its colors. Um, so each line is basically one cover kind of condensed into a 16 color uh, single pixel thing. <laughs> so That's um, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, as as a nerd, I am. It's like kind of Rob Gordon from uh, was it High Fidelity, like finding his <laughs> ultimate record ordering. Yeah. I find that totally uh, awesome that you can you can find that and find those relationships because because that's one thing that I spent most of my time with you know with comics growing up was like trying to find ordering everything and documenting everything, and then you know then some publisher comes up with a point you know point one <laughs> memory system and you're like screwed like oh. yeah. Well, I mean, it's also like. You know, they, they do these things for a reason, and sometimes it's actually, it's a perfectly good reason to signal something to a fan. Like, I'm going to renumber Fantastic Four back to issue one because a creative team has changed, and it's a new storyline. It's a good kind of signal. But when you're looking at it archivally, and, you know, the modes, like modes of media consumption are changing pretty radically now, and I think people do look at things in an archival way, like, you know, you binge watch on Netflix, you don't just wait every week for the new episode of something to come out. Yeah. Um, some, you know, people certainly do still, but it's not always, it's not the only mode you can do it. And that creates, I think, really big challenges organizationally, which is why, you know, we worked with things like creating APIs, creating, um, you know, graph models, <laughs> creating, working with schema.org, uh, you know, all of those things to uh, help kind of ourselves and our business and also our fans get a, a better, you know, uh, be able to, to engage with, with the product better. So, but now you're on IDEO, yeah. which is a great company. Um, um, so how, how did you choose to go from Marvel to IDEO? Was it was just different challenges or was it just... Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, I'd been in Marvel 10 years and... Okay. That's a long time to be anywhere. <laughs> um, and, uh, the second thing, like one, there was certain, there's things we at IDEO that we're looking at. I'd, I'd say one thing I found more and more that I got more and more interested at Marvel was not just how do we make innovative products, but actually how do we change Marvel and Disney to become more innovative? You know, so like I started to look at ways, you know, of, of not just impacting the things that we were doing, but impacting the organization and, and culture as itself. And this, that type of challenge is something that IDEO does now on a regular basis. So it's not just, uh, it's, it's beyond just like products that we design and make. And certainly we, we make a lot of and design a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but oftentimes we're looking at ways that through the process of design, we can have a really, really broad-based impact um, in the world uh, and in the inside organizations and whether that's like explicitly helping an organization, you know, find its purpose or redesign itself um, uh, or through the process of designing a product, help them kind of center and reorient around it um, to support and, and launch that product. So, um, you know, so this one, one thing was kind of like the scope of challenges that like, I could, I can do, we can, you know, really think about and work on here at IDEO's change and also like just different kind of materials to work with material in a very broad sense. So like, you know, one day we might be looking at something that, you know, we're actually working on Arduinos and co doing stuff in the physical space, which is just not, you know, 
something we tended to do at Marvel and in, in the digital media group. And other times we're looking at organization and really highly strategic stuff. And, you know, oftentimes I'm still like working with data and working with APIs and all of that. So it kind of, there's a broader scope of things and it's certainly not a diss on Marvel, but definitely a change in kind of the focus and impact I was looking to do with my career. So, right. um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, um, it was, you know, it's, it's not easy to leave a company that you've been at and that, you know, leave an organization within the company that you kind of helped build from the ground up. But it was also just like kind of like the right time and a right opportunity. And, um, uh, idea was such a interesting, crazy place to work that, uh, yeah. wanted to, you know, uh, it was a good good move to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, I could just just you saying like there's different range of po- uh, projects, you know. Yeah, keep you interested yeah. more so than. And you've been at the IDEO for a few years now, so yeah. I, I guess I should kind of explain what IDEO is, because <laughs> um, you know, so we're a design consultancy. Uh, IDEO was founded in the '80s and like originally did things like Apple's first mouse and and uh, Microsoft's first mouse, and now we you know we we definitely do things like that as well as, you know, digital products um, and also look at like, you know, how, how do we make organizations themselves more innovative? How do we make, you know, movements happen that can affect society sometimes in, in interesting ways? So our, our scope of, of work goes everything from like, how can we create, you know, interesting um, or powerful movements in society down to like, let's make this product or make the services that can support a product. Like, so we're doing it, like we'll work on anything from like, uh, we have a challenge right now on OpenIDEO, which is one of our kind of public-facing innovation crowdsourcing engines around making uh, 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 reducing food waste globally. Um, two things like uh, I worked on a on an app for uh, for everyday fashion <laughs> earlier yeah. this year, so it's like yeah. it's all over the place. Um, yeah, and so like uh, I've I've done some work uh, there, like. I've done a certain amount of work uh, actually for the government, making the government more collaborative and uh, sharing, uh, making certain parts of the government share knowledge better, um, which helps us all as, as taxpayers, hopefully. Um, And uh, other parts are like, we're going to be launching, we'll work uh, a a project we're working, worked on uh, recently about making New York more resistant to floods. We'll be launching in the next few weeks. Probably. Wow. yeah, um, it's uh, so that that's been kind of that's been pretty cool because it's it's you know in our backyard here, and um, it's uh, it's something that like we uh, you know uh, it, it, as part of that like as part of the design research process for that we were visiting people who had been affected by superstorm San, San, superstorm Sandy and uh, you know looking at like kind of how sometimes fragile the uh, the New York. Uh, landscape is, um, and it gives you that gave me a very new perspective on New York. We use what's called design thinking, which is really just a way of like looking at all of our problems, no matter what the need is, no matter what the the client is, from the lens and the understanding the the people who are going to be affected by what you build. So whether that's the consumer of an app or someone who might be you know, using a service that we design or, you know, the member of the organization that the tool, you know, the knowledge sharing tool is for is really understanding and listening and being really one-on-one with them so that what we design is helps them, you know, meets their needs and all of that. 
is, um, is, is that design thinking? Is that what it, what, what it is? Is that just like just thinking about in terms of more interaction with the user or, or consumer, I guess? Well, it's, it's getting, I, I guess you could say it's sort of three things. One is like getting empathy and understanding the, the user. And, and I think it's, it's the user. And then once you know that, like understand like the business needs of the person, you know, whether that's a nonprofit or a uh, government entity or a for-profit company, like what is, what do they need business and operationally to be able to support this and, and what do they need to get out of it and also what can be done within reasonable technology, you know, today. So a lot of the times I'm kind of looking at all of those, um, but we always start with the, we always say like we always start with the user and there's a whole Venn diagram of like, you know, because a lot of the times like you, you might start with like looking at the technology first and you could come up with some really great technology um, or you might end up with something like Google Glass, which I think is an amazing piece of technology, but had trouble really kind of resonating with consumers and, and finding a market. And sometimes you'll look at like a lot of companies will look at the business, like what's going to make us a lot of money? Um, and they'll end up with something that that probably may or may not make the money, but is not always maybe doesn't maximize that because they're not understanding the users who are, who are using it. So like imagine like, you know, ATM fees. Um, they make a lot of uh, fees for banks, but it also hurts their brand and makes makes them seem colder and um, you know uh, less responsive or like you know some car companies will or rideshare companies will increase their prices by <laughs> significant amounts when they're when they're busy and that's a totally economically rational decision but it, it you know then their competitors use it as ads against them um, so we always start by like what do people need and how can we turn that into designs and then that's kind of the first step, and then the second step is how to is building and actually making things um, to take the hunches and the insights we've learned from that first step and prototyping and prototyping and prototyping. Um, you know, we go through a whole process of like prototyping and synthesis and taking the learnings, um, playing them back, testing them with designs, testing them with prototyping. So it's a very working very tangibly um, as opposed to. You know, making a PowerPoint deck and say, "Go build this." You know, it's in that's that's also a way of ultimately reducing risk. I think you know, so like it it is fun and everyone has you know, it's fun and creative and all that, but it also helps actually you know vet ideas quickly and early, and then um, uh, make sure that they are actually buildable and viable and all of that quick. And and also, it's a great forcing function. Like it's very easy to say, "We should build this thing," and then. Doing a quick prototype says, yeah, maybe not, <laughs> or maybe we should, or well, let's build it with the, do this and this, and then combine that. So, like a lot of you know, prototypes can be everything from like sketches uh, to fairly robust uh, um, data-driven things to you know, three D printed things to uh, um, we for the flood resilience project, we actually we made a. Uh, a VR uh, using a Google uh, Cardboard um, demo of what your uh, where the where you're standing using Google Maps and the cardboard and the flood line of Sandy, so you could see like where the the, the tide line would hit where you were, um, which could help really contextualize the problem to people. Um, you know, and also was like good to get to to get people to to demos and things like that. <laughs> According to LinkedIn. <laughs> your job is a, a creative technologist, which is an awesome, awesome title. So, but uh, so I just want to say, like, what is a day to day uh, job for a creative technologist? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a loaded term. Um, yeah, we so I I I kind of do a few different things. One is like helping kind of uh, find new clients and new work. So like you know, figuring out like are we a good fit for a particular challenge? You know, how can we actually create a product project with a with a client that would be you know important for them and and fun for us and and uh, you know. Uh, all of that. Um, I work in project teams. So one of the things that's different from IDEO is different from a lot of companies and a lot of even like a lot of other consultancies where uh, a project team at IDEO like works on a project from beginning to end. So it's not like, oh, we bring in the developers at the end or we bring in, you know, a research at the beginning. Like every project team is a kind of interdisciplinary group that um, is thinking about a problem with their own kind of individual lenses. So like if you have like a team, you might have a team that's like a writer and a design researcher and a software programmer all working together on a, uh, or as we sometimes call them, software designers um, on a particular challenge over say, you know, 10 to 12 weeks um, or sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. I think the top of the bell curve is like 10 weeks, but um and so you're kind of working in like these little pods from time to time. So I, I, you know, I work on project teams and help, um, particularly with um, clients that are uh, like undergoing some form of digital transformation or uh, are working on launching a digital product. Um, or and oftentimes, in, in some in some cases, like I uh, like where I might have some other expertise. Like if there's a media client or something, I'll sometimes work on those you know, help, you know, work on those project teams to get the, uh, <laughs> to get the project out. I mean, it, it's funny. It's like sometimes I'm doing, I'm cutting code and I'm like working across a bunch of different programming languages and, and getting stuff out the door. Uh, other times it's a lot more like strategic and upstream. Like that sounds pretty awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sign me up. Where do I go? Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And, uh, how can people, uh, follow your awesome, uh, Twitter avatar? <laughs> uh, I know my Twitter name is kind of weird because it's uh, it's like the result of an inside joke that's lost all meaning. <laughs> but it's Deathtron five thousand D E T H T R O N five thousand, um, and you can uh, it's kind of the same on like every social media platform. So um, yeah, and I'm I'm excited. I think there's a lot of you know to me like we live in a time now where like. There's, I think there's this explosion of really interesting technologies that can be used in, in really creative and human-centered ways right now. And, and that's everything from you know, VR and AR to uh, the, the rapid advances we're seeing in, in machine vision and computer and the, the kind of broad set cluster of AI technologies. So it's like, I feel like to me, like the, you know, getting back to the right brain, left thing, brain thing, like that's where that's the thing that like makes me get up and go to work every morning is like we have this opportunity of, of using technology in a creative way to help humans and to, to work with humans needs um, and not, um, and you know, not necessarily lead with the technology, but become this technology is now a new design material. And to me, like that's like, you know, why I get up every day. It's like, how do we actually use this stuff in more and more creative ways to help, you know, to help people and to help, you know, businesses and to help organizations. So 
uh, you know, thing. So, yeah, that, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at now. So thank, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. Oh man, it's, it's been my pleasure. 